When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got Jeff Tanner. He's the Chief Commercial and Marketing Officer for JM Smucker Company. In his current role, Jeff oversees teams supporting the customer and customer experience across the commercial funnel. This includes consumer engagement, innovation, insights and analytics, as well as the U.S. retail sales market development, and e-commerce functions. Today on the show, we talk about really the transformation that the marketing organization, as well as JM Smucker overall, has been going through. We talk about the power of one, their agency approach, as well as the approach that they're taking internally to transform, as well as the many key elements that make up that transformation, as well as highlighting some of the external creative that we all can see. Things from GIF, to Folgers and many of their other brands that we all know. (laughs) So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeff Tanner. Jeff, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, curious and and excited for this conversation. There's a lot of good stuff we can talk about. But um, before we get started on the business side, I hear obviously your accent is coming through. So you're 
from New Zealand, is what my understanding. And uh, I hear you are working on music for Cleveland. I really know. What, I want to know more about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm glad I haven't lost it yet. I'm in trouble if I do. Yeah, if you told my younger self in New Zealand that I would be writing a fight song for. Uh, the city of Cleveland for the sports teams. I probably would have looked at you sideways, but that's what um, I'm doing. Uh, During the pandemic, like a lot of people, I found myself wanting to give back, especially in the community uh, where we live. We're about 30 minutes out of Cleveland. And I found out that the city and region ranks number one for child poverty in the United States, which is which is horrific, and just asked how I could give back. I wanted to find something I was really passionate about and sort of marry up uh, giving back to the kids and and my own passion, which is music. I'm um, obviously not good enough to get paid for it, but a passionate musician. So I founded a charity in partnership with the Boys and Girls Clubs here uh, where we offer music, education, inspiration, and access and opportunities to kids, piloted it in six clubs. It's now being rolled out to 50 clubs. So it's sort of a broad music education and experiential program. And in order to raise money to take it to the next level, we decided we needed to generate more community awareness and had the idea of using music and celebrity and combining it with sports and really com- sort of hopefully uniquely combining the power of music and, and sport to help the kids. So I went to the uh, professional sports teams here, the Browns, the, the, the Guardians and the Cavs and said, would you guys be up for a big project where we'll write a fight song for the city and the teams? Would you give us players and, and really promote it all in support of raising awareness and money for this charity? And they were fabulous. They, um, they, they jumped at it. You know, I was in the uh, studio last Friday night with Kareem Hunt, one of the running backs for Cleveland Browns, Darius Garland from the Cavs, Miles Garrett, and we're writing and recording a, a song. It's sort of a hip-hop rock crossover song that is all about uh, the city of Cleveland being a bit of an underdog city and all in support of uh, raising money for, for kids who, who go to the Boys and Girls Clubs. I love that. I love that. And uh, I mean, what an amazing cause and passion, I guess, to, to marry, marry both your passion and a cause together. Yeah, it's something that I, I've learned along the way, which is if you can marry up a cause you really care about and something you're really passionate about, you're really going to put the reps in. And I love every second of it. I, I love being with the kids. I love being in the recording studio. I love pitching ideas to institutions such as the sports organizations and so it, it, it does marry a, a passion up with, with what is a very acute need here in, in Northeast Ohio. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. I have to ask, growing up, I mean, with this passion of music, did you play in bands too? No, I, it's, in New Zealand, you're, you're kind of thrust out onto a rugby field, um, which is actually how I ended up here in the United States. But I did play the piano and the love really took over when I stopped playing rugby uh, when I wasn't physically able. And it's just grown into a, into almost an obsession, writing, playing and giving back through through music. I love it. Well, from uh, from rugby to chief commercial and marketing officer at JM Smucker, tell me the path. How, how'd you how'd you end up? 
from New Zealand to, to where you are today? Yes, it's, it's non-linear, which is probably not a, not a surprise. I, like I said, I, I uh, grew up in New Zealand, uh, a small country, 5 million people. Rugby is an obsession, and, and I played rugby growing up as a, as a, as a kid. I came over to America to play rugby at uh, Penn State, actually, and fell in love with America, fell in love with the people, the, the culture, the crazy, the bigness of it all. Went back to New Zealand, finished off my degrees there, started a career as a strategy consultant. Um, and, you know, it was, a, it was a great career start, but at some point I wanted to make the leap and, and, and cross over into, into management and leadership inside a company. But I realized I wasn't going to do that in New Zealand. It's just, it's just too small. So I applied to go to business school. I went to Duke and I was a bit of a rough entry. I'll say I, I was here during 9-11 and, you know, candidly, it was quite a difficult time to be a, a foreign student in America. And I was, I was told I wasn't allowed to apply for uh, most jobs. And so I was candidly facing likely going home to New Zealand with a relatively large debt burden. And I got very fortunate and managed to land an internship, the only one that was available to me, at Heinz. They took a chance on me. And uh, since, since um, that was uh, 20 years ago, I've never left that first job. Uh, we've been bought and sold many times, I've had different owners of been owned by private equity. We're now owned by the Smucker company. But I built my career as a brand manager, but I was fortunate to get experience selling businesses. I built an innovation organization. I've moved in and out of marketing and innovation and some sales roles. Came across to the JM Smucker company when they acquired the company that we had founded and uh, was offered a chance to join the C-suite uh, actually planned on taking a sabbatical after we'd sold the company. Um, I had it all planned out. I just had my second child and figured that it was a bit of a unique time. I had it all planned out. And then Mark Smucker cornered me in a little bar in Wall Street during an investor meeting and said, you know, would I join his leadership team and really couldn't turn it down. And so over the past six years, I've been working here at Smucker just helping transform a company that largely grew through acquisition into one that is now doing very well, driving organic growth and stealing market share and competing with the likes of Nestle and Mars and uh, General Mills. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, and to your point around growing through acquisition, how how should listeners or, or myself think about JM Smucker today and the portfolio that you guys have? Yeah, I'm going to guess most of your listeners know the company is consumer brand, right? Jams and jellies. Well, we're, today we're at, at around about eight and a half billion dollars, and and the jams and jellies business is less than ten percent of the portfolio. So our largest business is our pet food and snacks business. That's the one we founded out in San Francisco. They acquired. We're also the largest at-home coffee company in the United States. We have a, a rocket ship that we refer to, which we call Uncrustables. And the Jams and Jellies business is, uh, is, a, is a pretty small piece of the portfolio. So the company's really changed a lot through acquisition. Well, I mean, with that portfolio, I mean, that's that's one, it's huge. And I did not realize that um, the jams and jelly business, which I do have jams and jellies in my refrigerator right now from Smuckers. <laughs> yeah, I did not realize that you guys were eight and a half billion dollars. That's a, that's a large remit, if you will, and quite a big portfolio across an 
a host of categories. And you mentioned the transformation that you've been on and the journey with the company. I'd love to hear more about that. Like, uh, I guess when I think of Smucker historically, um, and I've done work in the consumer packaged goods many, many years ago myself, it was kind of a sleepy company. You didn't hear a ton about it. And it just seems like you guys are are on quite the tear. And so tell me more about that transformation, if you don't mind. Yeah, I think sleepy is a, a good word for who we were. Uh, you know, it was a very conservative Midwest company that had, as I mentioned, grown through acquisition. And we had levered up our balance sheet to around about six times. So more acquisitions were off the table. And it was now time to start driving organic growth of these businesses that that we'd purchased of this of this new portfolio. But to your point, if you'd gone and asked around the circles that of marketing and, and growth and, and asked to list companies that, that would sort of come top of mind as great brand builders, we wouldn't have even been remotely in the consideration set. And that was candle, that was quite a well understood fact that marketing was not a growth driver in the organization, was not seen as a growth driver. And the marketing model was broken. When you double click into that, our creative was very safe and vanilla. The media was very narrow uh, and conservative. And we were also very siloed uh, internally and we had many agencies, so we were slow. The work would just get diluted. And that was the reality that we stared at in what would have been 2018, which was this need to grow organically. And marketing as, you know, sales and marketing are the two primary growth levers and, and, and marketing being completely broken. But the thing was, and this is, this is the thing I kept pushing, which we had some great brands. I mean, we, we have great, we have Jif and we have Folgers and we have Meow Mix and we have Milkbone and Uncrowd. We have these incredible brands. We play in great categories. Pets a phenomenal category. Coffee's a great category. You know, we're in snacking as well. So the only thing stopping us being world-class when you have great brands and you're in great categories was us. And we all stared at that. And we said, well, there's no reason why we can't be world-class. But what we recognize is we needed a revolution of sort of sorts. And, and that to do what our CEO coined, um, we need to give our brands and our business a blood transfusion. And that was the rallying cry. That was my rallying cry. That was our CEO, Mark Smucker's rallying cry. And turn marketing into a growth driver. And that mandate was laid down from the very top. And one of the people have asked me, like, how did you, how did you get this adopted so quickly? And I, I think sometimes when no one was defending the status quo, you know, I think if you walked into, I don't know, Pepsi or Procter and said, we need, we're going to completely revolutionize marketing. There could be some resistance. And, and whereas at Smucker, no one was defending the status quo. We, we knew we had to transform. We needed a revolution of sorts. And, and that really was the, the mantra that was the burning platform for what has been complete, a complete transformation of how we market our brands. Yeah. Well, I mean, it from a fight song for Cleveland, it feels like you guys had your own fight song internally at JM Smucker. Yeah, well, we needed it. We needed it. We needed it. Like we hadn't, when you looked back, if you take that marker, that point in time of 2018, only 25% of our portfolio was growing or holding market share and we had not seen organic sales growth in five years. 
So that's a pretty hot burning platform. That's an amazing stat. And I know you've turned the business around at this point. I mean, you talked about leadership buy-in at the top. What were some of the other key elements you had to do to, to actually make this happen? So the first thing we had to do was we had to change ourselves. I think sometimes companies can be guilty of thinking that, that the solution is changing the agency, right? Um, looking outside for change. And the first thing we did is we looked internally and we knew that our model, our organization, structure was in the way of really bold uh, work and being agile. We had too many silos. We had too many um, voices at the table. So we created, in, in essence, a single multidisciplinary team, which we called the power of one. So we collapsed silos into these multidisciplinary teams. And only once we've done that, did we go searching for an agency partner who also believed in the power of one and could create a power of one team. So at the time, we had 11 different agencies and they rolled up into five different holding companies. And it's just no, no wonder that the work was, was all over the place and no one knew who could decision rights. And so we went on a search to find an agency who had a power of one mentality, who could operate on that model. And then we lined up our power of one against theirs. And we said, you know what, there's, there's just two parties here across the entire portfolio. Um, so that was, that was certainly a critical element to get right. You know, the operating model had to be right for this to work. I would say a second element was we had to lay down a couple of markers around what we believed what was most critical to drive the business. The first, and this is something that I hold very dear, which is a passionate believer in the power of breakthrough creative and pushing our brands into culture, taking risks, pushing these brands to the edge. And that was the first pillar. And the second, in our world, was a belief that household penetration is the metric that drives the business. Therefore, a model that was all around reach was, was going to be the most effective on the media side. So it was, it was really combining these three things. One was a power of one operating model inside and out. Two, staking a, a claim that we will push the edge of creativity and push our brands into culture. And third, that we are going to focus on driving household penetration and therefore reach. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
approach. I love it. Powerful combination, obviously. I'd love to talk about some of the external examples of this, like in the creative aspect, if you will. Like I know you've done a number of things with like Meow Mix and Milk Bone and Folgers. Maybe if you don't mind sharing a couple of examples, that'd be great. Yeah. I mean, I... You know, we're blessed with these brands that are iconic, but many of them have been around for 50, 100. In the case of Folgers, it's been around for 170 years. And so how do you maintain the relevance of a 170-year-old brand? Right? So that's what we set out to do. So I'll rattle through some examples. So Meow Mix, it's over half a billion dollar cat food brand. And for years, we'd been putting out this creative that was pretty vanilla about it's good tasting food. And we would show these very vanilla shots of pet owners. And what we said is, well, wait a second, we have this iconic jingle, the meow, 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 you know, that jingle. And so I said, you know what, let's lean into what made the brand famous. And we went out and we produced pretty cutting edge TV spots of cats singing the jingle. We worked with the same producer that did a lot of Taylor Swift's work. We, we put out cats doing pop, country, EDM, and all of a sudden, I mean, yes, the message is this is the best tasting, most fun uh, cat food on the market, but it was delivered in a way that was just so breakthrough and so relevant and resonated with consumers. And some of our media placement um, around the Grammys and when we've got radio spots and, um, you know, I mean, it's, on one hand it's ridiculous, but I can tell you can point to when this creative dropped to watch the business respond. I've never seen a brand respond like that. And as I look at the business today, we're up 20%. And in our world, that's that's pretty high. You know, another example would be Jeff Peanut Butter. So if you remember the tagline, uh, choosy mums, choose Jeff. I mean, it's fine. And the creative, again, was pretty vanilla. Johnny comes home from school and, you know, has a nourishing peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But what we decided to, we decided that this Jeff Peanut Butter brand is so good. We said, you know what? The brand is going to stand for being the best damn peanut butter on the planet. And that was the brief to the agency and that it makes epically absurd things happen. And so we developed a campaign where we worked with Ludacris and Luda's in the studio. He's having a tough time making the music come out. And he has this scoop of peanut butter, starts mumbling a little bit, gets in his flow, and then his entire career just takes off again. And it's just, it's just wild. He's swimming in a mansion with a pool of peanut butter. And it, that uh, campaign just blew the doors off the business. I mean, we won a gold lion uh, from that. We've, we've picked up a dozens of awards on that campaign. From Folgers, we know we, we knew Folgers is, is not seen by everyone uh, as, uh, you know, the most prestigious cup of co coffee. And for years, we've been trying to showcase the, the, the coffee in different settings to try to make it. And then we said, what if we just leaned into that? And that the idea was that, you know what, we think it's a great uh, cup of coffee. And if you don't think so, we don't care. And we partnered up with Joan Jett and uh, launched a spot, which, which opens with her anthemic, I don't give a damn about my bad reputation. And we then went and told our story of our heritage, which is we're from New Orleans and the craftsmanship that goes into the cost. So I could go on and on with these examples, but you can see what we're doing here, right? We're tapping into the what made the brands famous and we're doing it in a way that is culturally relevant. And what you'll see here is a, and it didn't happen intentionally, but what you will see through much of the work we do is a very strong musical thread 
through the work that, that, we've, that we've been putting out. Yeah. I love these examples. One, because they're hilarious to think about. And they're so visual too, as you describe them. You don't even need to see them to know what, know what it's like. And it's so funny to me because I don't know how many times you're out in the world and you see brands that are perfectly fine, right? Like they've been around, to your point, like Folgers has been around 170 years and they just haven't gotten the love that they need, frankly. Dust them off, you know, <laughs> restage them for for today and let them shine. And I love the fact that you're, you know, you've tapped into, if you will, like to use kind of Byron Sharp language, distinctive assets, you know, around each of these. I love that you brought up Byron because, you know, he's a fellow New Zealander, actually. And I think he lives in Australia now, but I won't hold that against him. He and a guy called Mark Ritson. So I um, am a disciple of How Brands Grow, but we, I was so enamored by Mark Ritson and the way Mark Ritson looks. I flew him over here. Oh, really? Yeah, during the early stages of our turnaround, you know what? You need to come talk to our organization. And his coaching and teaching, his his thought DNA is all over the work. And you'll see Byron's reach thinking in, in our work and you'll see you'll see Mark's coaching and brand codes and what made the brands famous and, and lean into that. So I, I would say that the theoretical or underpinnings of our transformation are very much Byron and Mike written influenced. I love that. Both of which have been on the show. So you're in good company. So I've interviewed both of them. And Mark actually um, uses a number of my episodes in his embedded like mini MBA course. Oh, that's high praise because that guy... He knows his stuff, and we put some of our, our folks through as many MBA course. So, uh, you know, I need to bring him back out again, make a note to do that. You should, and then I'm going to make him give me a cut. <laughs> no, it's it's awesome. I, he is he is fantastic, and such such a he, he's one he's bit, he's such a strategic marketer. The thing I like about him, and it's a, it's I'll probably get in trouble with this, but he's a quintessential Australian. He just tells it like it is. You know, it is, and sometimes it can be blunt. And I, again, I get in trouble, but it's a very Australian way of, of, uh, of communicating, in my experience. It's refreshing, and his bluntness is just cuts through some of the BS that marketers can get twisted around it. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, yeah, he's a very sharp guy, very entertaining. So it's nice to hear his name as it relates to to helping you guys uh, uh, find find the the essence of these brands and make them come back to life. That's that's amazing. So you've got this new model. You've obviously seen a lot of success on the marketing, like the comms and and brand side, if you will. But I mean, you know, your title, even in the title, chief commercial and marketing officer. We haven't talked about the commercial side. And a lot of times with this to work, you have to have both, right? You can't just have one without the other. How did you make sure the commercial side was ready to leverage what you were doing? Yeah. I mean, great marketing is powerful, but where the real power comes in is when it's one lever, right? Of a holistic growth model. And that's something that we have very intentionally been putting in place. So we've spoken a lot about the marketing side, but in addition to great creative and what I call intelligent media, in order to drive a business for the sustainable, for sustainable long-term growth, you need to have great innovation. You need to be working on long-term growth plans with customers. You need to be providing category leadership with them and working on shelf sets and and then you need to have a selling organization that is fundamentally analytically driven 
on the sales fundamentals. And when you pull all of those levels, levers, that's when you can really accelerate growth. And, and that's what, that is what we have done. We would not have seen the results we'd seen if we had not, in addition, transformed our selling machine. And I am as proud of that transformation as I am of the marketing transformation. And over the last, I'd say, couple of years, the distinction between marketing and sales has completely blurred. You look at, it uh, started, I think, with e-commerce and then the Walmarts and the Amazons of this world. And, you know, Walmart's just gone and created, I put Seth in place as the chief revenue officer. And so we needed to have a similar transformation of sales, which we did. But as I look at it now, what, what used to be kind of twin towers have now really merged and the ability to partner with retailers and have this bilingual or multilingual conversation with them about growth that will travel through marketing and brand building and media and then to omni-channel and data, you know, and that that's the organization that we've put in place. And, you know, if I think about as we sit here three years later, and I think back to, to where we started, you know, I think I mentioned 25% of the portfolio was growing market share. Well, today it's well above 75. We hadn't seen organic sales growth for five years with 11 out of 12 quarters. When we started, our stock price was 93 bucks. And look, I know a lot of things move the stock market. I wouldn't put it all on this, but you know, today I'll start, I'll start closer at 147. So, you know, 93 to 147 in our space is a, is a good increase. And then it was really, we got this call from Fast Company saying, you know, we've just been voted amongst one of the world's most innovative companies. And that you don't do this for awards, but I will tell you that of all the awards we've, we've received to get that phone call and to be recognized as an innovative company, given where we started, which I know we talked about, really meant a lot, meant a lot to our organization, meant a lot to me. And it was a real marker of the progress that we've made. Yeah. I mean, it, that's quite the accomplishment, especially considering where you where you started from. And uh, I mean, Fast Company, they're typically talking about startups, <laughs> the unicorns of the world, if you will. And uh, I mean, you're an eight and a half billion dollar unicorn and actually profitable. <laughs> uh, that's a good <laughs> Yeah, no, um, well, and, and that's why it meant a lot. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't just a sort of an ad award. It was an award on on who we've become as a, a recognition of who we've become as a company over that three year period. Well, amazing success. I mean, like, I, it's kind of like jaw dropping. It's hard to put in words all the things that you've taken on and all the transformation that's been driven at the company. Kudos to you guys. And really, I mean, I, I'm really excited to see, frankly, some of like Byron's thinking balanced with Mark's perspective as well. Because a lot of times I think we chase as marketers, we can we can sometimes tend to chase the things that are in the, the waves that come at us, right? And so you've got your purest Sharponians, if you will. And then the thing I do like about Ritson in particular is that he's pretty balanced. Um, at the end of the day, he's very strategic, but balanced in his view and understands the fundamentals. And it, you prove that the fundamentals pay. Yeah, I would say that um, for Byron, I'll go as far as say, I'm not sure that enough marketers understand what fundamentally drives the business. And he has shown and proven that it is household penetration. It is not loyalty. And therefore, reach must matter. And yes, we can get smarter about reach, relevant reach. We, you know, we can avoid weight, but end of the day, reach drives household penetration. And then with Mark Ritson, what, what Byron doesn't talk about as much is the power of world-class creative. And it's really not in his studs, not in his, in his books. I haven't seen him talk about it. Whereas Mark gave us some 
excellent an excellent framework to think about that and so it was a marriage of those two schools of thought but leaning more on byron on the media side and and, and mark on the creative side that's what that that absolutely underpinned underpins our approach yeah i think as soon as you get out of the the math side of the equation in Ehrenberg bass it becomes more jenny's i think your last name is Ramanuk, Ramanuk, something like that. But it starts to go into her direction with brand, brand assets, how you create brand assets. But agree, there's not a lot of data in the creative world. And so there's not a lot for him to study. Right. (laughs) Uh, That's a good point. I can tell you, it works. Brilliant creative is the most important element of any mix. Yeah. Well, another person, as we're talking about, like uh, thought leaders in this space, doesn't get as much popular press as Mark or Byron, but is uh, is a, a I like him is a JB Stingcamp, and you'll have to go to the better, lighter blue business school to find him because he's at he's at UNC. But JB has done some phenomenal work, in particular around like how to thwart private label as well as hard discounters. He he focuses a lot on their business model. That is an issue for us right now. That is a, something we have square in our sights for sure. Yeah. So I would, I would encourage you to check out some of his, his work, but uh, this has been fantastic. What I do like to do is get to know you a little, a little bit better. We know you have a, a passion around music, uh, helping, giving back to your community. Um, but my favorite question to ask everyone that comes on the show is, has there been an experience of your past that defines and makes up who you are today? Yeah, I, I alluded to it before, but it was going to Duke and it was 2001 and being told that I couldn't, couldn't get a job. And I gotta tell you, that was very, very, it was a very difficult period for me. You know, I, I was the first New Zealander to go to Duke business school and I was kind of really proud of that. And I had left home and I had, you know, I had a good upbringing and didn't really want for much, but I took on a mountain of debt in New Zealand dollars to go to, um, business school in America. And I was faced with having to go home um, with my you know, tail between my legs and you know, I couldn't get a job. And as I said, I got very, 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 very lucky that Heinz was the only company that was uh, hiring marketers, uh, foreign students into, um, into marketing. And when I got that internship, I realized that this was my only chance <laughs> and I had, to, I had to make this work. There wasn't an option of it not working out. And I, I sort of coined this approach that I needed to work probably two times harder than everybody else to make this happen. And I really believe that that was the moment that I moved off of the people mover in life that I was on a little bit and needed to move at my own speed a lot faster. And um, I sort of became, I sort of started to become relentless in a way, which is I will find a way. If someone says no, I'm going to make it happen. And I think experiences like when you only have one shot, those experiences, they can define you. And it's never left me. And I think it's also left an appreciation for people who have barriers put in front of them, whatever they are. It's why I feel passionate about IDE. It's why I feel passionate about this music charity with the Boys and Girls Club, because many of those folks have barriers put in front of them. And as someone who, who, who lived that experience a little differently, but certainly a barrier, it defined who I have become in business and it has defined how I think about giving back. Yeah, very passionate understanding of the cause that you're, uh, you're supporting now. I love that. If you were starting this journey all over again, what advice would you give yourself? I would say give back earlier. I, you know, I didn't start this charity until I was 47. 
couple of years ago. It not only is it the right thing to do, but it opens up a whole new world that is so fulfilling, depending on what you choose to do. So yes, there there is the giving part, and then I, I, it's not it's not self it's not selfish, but it has opened up a world to me that is so engaging and has given me and my family experiences that they never would have gotten. You know, to be in the recording studio on Friday with the kids and Kareem Hunt and to be recording a track and have Kareem tackling my kids and, you know, I mean, it's just, I, I, I can't think of anything else I'd rather do on a Friday than be in a recording studio with some professional athlete and, 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 and that, and, and giving back at the same time. And I, I kind of wish I'd done it a lot earlier. Well, I think as people, we don't realize the power that we have in just what we do normally. Right. And I think you think, I don't know, I've had this thought, I'll say, I don't know if everyone thinks this way, but you have this perception of what it means to have a charity or to give back. And I don't know, I always think, oh, I'm not quite there yet. Right. <laughs> but the reality is I'm I'm there right now. And so is everyone listening to this. And you have something you can give because you have something of value that creates wealth for you. Just tap into that. I agree. I what I realize is a lot of people write a check and that's it. And actually for people like you and me and listeners of this podcast, the what you have in your world and your ecosystem is incredible if you uh, want choose to harness it. So for me, just because of my job, I was able to call the CEO of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and say, will you be a partner in this? Call the CEO of the Cleveland Symphony and say, will you be a partner in this? And other organizations, and you know what? They returned the phone call. And I was able to tap into our marketing uh, department and get them to produce assets and make introductions. And so the value that you can bring to the table, I think is, is, is you know, when, when you think through it is, is, is considerable and it's not just, you know, Hey, if I made, you know, a ton of money that I can afford to donate X percent, that's, that's not, I, I, I mean, yes, that's, that's obviously extremely valuable, but that's not what, that's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to, bring people together to create something special for the kids. And I can only do that because of my day job. No, it's beautiful. Well, uh, a couple more marketing topics for you. I'm curious if there's uh, you know, something you're trying to learn more about yourself um, or you, you think other marketers should be learning more about. I think that uh, I mentioned it earlier, this fusion between sales and marketing. You know, growing up in, in, in the consumer products world, sales and marketing lived in different, the twin towers, they didn't really engage you know <laughs> quarterly all the time and and they were just very different frameworks and often different people and and i have just seen a complete merging of those two disciplines and whether it be e-commerce whether it be retail media you go have a conversation with amazon today and you, you have the time what, what are we talking marketing we're we talking sales I, I you know the common denominator is always data, but this the fusion of upper funnel and lower funnel. You know, I had dinner with the CEO of Walmart recently and um, the chief revenue officer, and it was a, it was a, it was a bilingual, multilingual conversation. And so, one of the things that I that I do a lot in my job is I'm trying to cross pollinate. I'm trying to move marketers into sales and sales folks into marketing. I'm trying to encourage my sales folks to understand retail media networks and. Uh, how they work and how to have those conversations. I'm trying to encourage the sales folks to 
to have a understand data and then vice versa. And I think that if you want a career in, in marketing or sales, I would highly encourage people to look for opportunities to become bilingual, multilingual. I love that. Well, um, are there brands, I mean, this is a hard question for somebody that sits over so many per- portfolio uh, or so many brands within your portfolio, but are there brands, companies or causes you follow or you think other people should take notice of? Yeah, that's a, it's a hard question, right? Because I should be able to rattle them off. <laughs> But I, you know, it's tough. I will say the, the the brand that I probably refer to the most is Oreo. A good friend of mine is Justin uh, Parnell, who's who's the I believe the GM of the Oreo business. Well, pass him my regards and tell him that there's this guy in Cleveland who's often uses his brand as a as a marker because it, there is no reason for that brand to be so strong. I mean, that you know. I mean, it's, it's a great tasting cookie, but there's a lot of them. And I am in awe of their branding. I mean, their, their, their innovation, their sales execution. And, you know, it's an iconic brand like many of ours, but that brand could have fallen by the wayside, could have become stale. And it is, it is a vibrant brand that is part of culture. It's cool. It's multi-generational. And that is only because of uh, what I see coming out of that, that team, which is incredible marketing, incredible innovation and incredible sales execution. So props to them because we use them a lot. Yeah, they're a pretty phenomenal group. Well, last question for you. What do you believe is the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today? I actually think the, the answer is the same for threat and opportunity. I think we're getting close, but we have to be able to close the loop on mass media measurement. You know, I've been in... In, in this business for 20 years. I've, I'm sure I'll offend people with a statement, but some of those ROI models, I think, are still suspect. They're too imprecise. They're regression-based. We should be able to, and we must be able to measure the impact of an ad, who watched it, and measure precisely whether it impacted purchase in very short order. Those things must be possible. I think we're getting close. Hulu and Kroger, some stuff Amazon's doing, Walmart will get there, but we're not there yet. And when we get there, could you imagine being able to drop an ad and know definitively, very quickly, did it reach my target consumer and did, how much did it change purchase? And know that within ooh, 60 days. There's no reason we shouldn't be able to do that. I mean, the more OTT we go, it's going to be easier. The, the more that retailers jump into this space, but... I just think it's it's unusual that here we are 20 years later and no one's really, really cracked it, right? And I say it's an opportunity and it's a threat because there are many marketers, I think, who are, you know, feel they need to try to justify the ROI and well, this would be definitively how to do it. So I think it's a huge opportunity and one that I hope we can we can solve certainly before I retire. That would be that would be nice. <laughs> I love that. Well, I mean, we've been in this world. I, I think it, I'm going to get my dates a little wrong, but like somewhere in the 1970s, 1980s was when the, scanner data began to be a thing. So you're in like 40, 50 years ago, we've had data and we haven't figured out the best way to measure this. Isn't it mind boggling how we don't, I mean, think about what we can do with technology and the fact that we can't actually measure the true impact is is mind boggling at at one level. Well, and I, I think, I hope that consumers want us to get there too, because I think as soon as, to your point, we can say, definitively, I drop an ad and I know the impact of sales. It's going to, I mean, it's going to be an arms race for creative quality. 
and creative effectiveness, right? And it's just going to make the ad experience that much better. That's a really good point, actually. It'll only make the work better and hopefully less of an intrusion. I mean, look, we'll get there, but it's, it's mind-boggling that we're still sitting here unable to answer that question. No, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> well, Jeff, kudos on all the, the the work that you've done, the, the success. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing it with us. Yeah, you really reminded me. I'm going to put a, a call back into Mark and get him over here because he was very much, he absolutely fired up our organization when we launched this. So. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with post-production support from Sam Robertson. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com. Tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love hearing from listeners. You can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes and links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 